bandwidth for JS Party is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. Welcome to JS Party, a weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. Tune in live on Fridays at 3 p.m. U.S. Eastern at changelaw.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time. Head to changelaw.com slash community. Follow us on Twitter. We're at JS Party FM. And now on to the show. Hey, uh, welcome to JS Party, where it's a party every week with JavaScript. Joining me is Rachel White. Say hello. Hello. <laughs> and Alex Sexton. You don't tell me what to do. You just tell Rachel what to do. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yep, exactly. Uh, and I'm Michael Rogers. So let's let's dive into it today. We have some pretty deep topics that I want to get into. So um, they just had an AMP conf, uh, Accelerated Mobile Pages conf uh, from Google. Alex, why don't you tell us what the hell these are? W- what is AMP? Sure. Uh, I work with AMPs a lot. Uh, they're small, sometimes large electronic devices that use voltage multiplication usually through like an op amp <laughs> or a series of uh transformers resistors capacitors uh in order to increase different amps okay uh <laughs> accelerated mobile pages are a thing google came out with probably within the last year i don't think it's been quite a year yet but you know so, something like that there you you've you've seen them they're kind of uh best viewed in the light in my opinion as kind of google's answer to all of the in-app mobile browser fast insta reader type pages that exist so there were like facebook instant stories and there were the same thing on uh, different platforms and then there were ways you could save articles and then read them without ads and and stuff like that so really uh specifically though like what it actually is is uh something you can kind of opt your content website in so this is usually like news articles that is the, the by far the number one use case you opt in your site, your your content site to to AMP, and then uh, you promise to fulfill a few um, uh, somewhat difficult to fulfill um, things where you don't use uh, external CSS and you don't do this and you don't do that, et cetera, et cetera. And based on those things, your site can be really fast. And then on top of that, Google will then cache your site on Google servers and serve it uh, like edge cached and even faster optimized because based on the rules that you agreed to follow, they can super hyper optimize and preload articles even on your phone before you even click on them. So the, the resulting experience is that when you go to Google and you search for a news article, there's like a little carousel up top and that's uh, seems unimportant, but that's actually why most people do it uh, is to get in that little carousel. And there's little lightning bolts next to the websites um, in order to incentivize people to build AMP websites and for users to click on them. And then when you click on them, they load instantly and they're not bogged down with ads or interstitials or, uh, and, they, and they work on mobile and, and all that kind of stuff. The, the negative side that people dislike is A, Google is hosting all the content. And so they end up being the controller and the gate and have all the information about all the traffic. And then also the URLs are really not uh, great because like it's going to be google.com slash amp article slash your URL to your website, which is like better than them hiding it entirely, I, I think, but uh, still somewhat negative. So, so you have this whole new ecosystem of amp web pages. Um, and it's kind of hard to like as a user, I don't necessarily want to opt out of it, but I often like want to break out of it. Um, and and it's, I, I think, improving slowly. I, I think it's 
I, we can talk about what, what we think about it, I, I guess, outside of my explanation of what it is. Is, is that helpful at all? Yeah, uh, that's helpful for me. I I actually didn't even know what AMP was until last week when everyone came to New York for AmpConf. Um, but I had like noticed while browsing the Internet when I'm trying to fall asleep and I'm like trying to read the articles, I've had these I guess AMP now that I know AMP articles pop up and I've been trying to send them to my friends. And then I'm like, why is there not a link? So I think like I'm okay with the speed. Like obviously that makes a lot more sense, but please someday let me copy a link faster somehow. Yeah. So, so the, I think it's gotten better in, in like very recently you can click on the like URL of the article, which is in the top bar. Uh, that exists um, on the on the page. Like they always put this like nav bar above your nav bar that kind of says the real URL. And I think now you can click on that and go to the real website. Before uh, and and if you're if that doesn't work, you could always do the request desktop site, which um, usually would do the trick. So you oh. said that it makes things faster. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. You go ahead first. It's a merge conflict. Um, so. You mentioned that it makes things faster. So there, there's what is making it faster. So there's there's a new format which sure. is HTML and JavaScript. So it's somewhat different than the web. It's 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 a uh, was that a joke? No no no. Uh, uh, sorry, I guess I don't understand what you're saying. Then it's it's still all valid HTML JavaScript. You add like a lightning bolt um, <laughs> to your HTML element. That's uh, a fun like little Unicode trick. And then you write regular CSS and JavaScript, but you do things like use custom elements for your images. That way your images aren't like pipeline to load immediately, um, if, that, if that makes sense. So, so you use an AMP IMG instead of an IMG, and then they can decide like, let's put in the above the fold images and not the below the fold images. And then you agree to not have external CSS and only have 50 kilobytes of inlined CSS. And so it like completely reduces the amount of CSS you can use, but it's still just regular CSS and you can do whatever you want in that 50 kilobytes. So there's a bunch of rules and they have um, a JavaScript file you can inject on your page that will validate all these rules that will say, hey, you're not following this rule. You may not be like pipelined into the super fast AMP experience. Uh, the other part is if you use Chrome, Chrome can do extra things to like prefetch and, and stuff. I, I don't know to the extent of which that happens, but they absolutely could do that uh, based on their rule set. They're pretty much uh, much like uh, we talked about Asm.js last uh, week. How Asm.js is a completely valid subset of JavaScript, but once you only restrict yourself to that subset, you can make certain speed improvements happen. Uh, the same thing is true of AMP. And I think the arguments are more or less the exact same uh, for and against them is that like, this seems fundamentally weird that we had to do this thing. Um, uh, it's just weird that in, in the past, Firefox was the one who was like, hey, add this comment to your JavaScript and it will put it into ASM mode and it will speed up. And Google was like, no, we can just make things fast all the time. And now in this case, Google's like, add this comment uh, or this property, this attribute to your HTML element and we can make things fast. And Firefox is like, no, we can just always do that. So I find, I find them very related. So is what's making it fast those, you know, Google caching it and, and Chrome creating it differently? Or is is it the it's fact both. that you can't insert your ads and you can't do all of these things that destroy performance? Yeah, so it's, it. it's, it's everything. So 
I think one of the primary benefits, um, I, I think you have to, I think out of context, AMP is a bad idea and we shouldn't do it. And why would we do that? It centralizes things and it's bad and blah, 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 blah. But I think in context where like, if you look at, um, Android, I can't remember the exact stat. You, if you look at some graph that was released recently, it's some insane amount of browser UAs that content websites get are the Facebook browser. Like the Facebook browser is one of the top three browsers in existence. Like even though it's not a real browser and the whole goal uh, that they're doing uh, there is to like make these fast experience so you don't have to without ads and, and kind of stuff. So you don't have to deal with, uh, you know, the web as it as it stands today. Um, so Google. <laughs> Google's one-upping them, saying, hey, let's do this all with the real web, without apps, without all these things. And if you follow these rules and you don't sign up for AMP, you don't put the attribute and you don't do any of these things, your site's going to be so much faster anyways. And so it's kind of like the ASM fallback. It's like, if your browser doesn't support ASM, this is still going to be super fast anyways, based on the things that we already have in place for making websites fast. But if we run it through our thing, because we know the constraints, we can make it even faster, if that kind of makes sense. So it's kind of a little bit of everything. But the fundamental thing is like AMP could die tomorrow and no one would be like screwed. And I think that's pretty critical. I have a question. Sure. So people are that are like participating in this, if I'm like a news publication that decides to integrate these like AMP pages for, for my articles, if like a couple different places, say like the New York Times, Washington Post, and um, I don't know, the Chicago Sun-Times all write similar articles about the same thing, is this going to affect like who shows up? Like, yeah. Oh, okay. That's, yeah. that's interesting. Only kind of. So, so here's, here's the lowdown here. Um, I think uh, if I may put on my uh, tinfoil hat for a second. <laughs> I think one of the primary motivations here is to make the web better. I, 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 th I think the intentions are good. Um, like Malta and Paul Bacchus and like the, some of the people, uh, Malta Ubel, uh, like working on this are absolutely fundamental believers in the web platform. And I don't think they would do something like secret and bad or, or whatever. Um, but the incentivization for why people do this, I think they recognize right off the bat that Make your website faster by using AMP is not uh, something that people would necessarily respond to. So they've used SEO and uh, ranking and that kind of thing, not directly, somewhat indirectly, as kind of the, the, the carrot uh, to the stick of harder to build web, web pages, or at least constrained web pages. So AMP web pages show up in a carousel above the results. Um, now speed is already an indicator in, in page rank. So like, but you don't have to have amp is not a specific, uh, like you could have a faster page than an amp page and, and technically be ranked higher. Like it's not the fact that you're using amp is good. So that, that will automatically change some things, but you get, uh, you get the little lightning bolt on the page results, which is not nothing. Like uh, if I saw two articles and one had a lightning bolt, I feel like I've clicked the lightning bolt one, but also the carousel is pretty much what like every content creator right now wants to get in there's like this thing that pops up above all the other results and you can kind of swing through that and actually a lot of people don't know this if you click onto an amp page from the carousel 
like you can see the contextual relationship. Like I clicked on the middle one and the article before it was this and the article after it was this. And they're all part of the same like news story, even though they're different, like specific articles. It's all about, you know, uh, Sean Spicer wearing his uh, United States flag upside down or whatever. There are arrows in the top nav bar and you can click actually between the carousel from the different websites. So you can like just page through the different articles somewhat instantly, which is something I've never used, but also seems kind of cool. Uh, but, but absolutely like all the feedback from content developers is we want to be in the carousel, not we want a super fast web page so our users can whatever, whatever, whatever. Yeah. So I hate this. So th this is, <laughs> this is terrible. I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, so, okay. So there's this, there's the AMP format, right? Which is, which is basically a set of really good practices, right? For, for being a good mobile like Potential, citizen yeah. and making making your stuff fast on mobile that's great like they've done a great job there it's great to get people on that bandwagon but all of those positive arguments immediately kind of fall away when you start to look at how they're incentivizing people to create the content like you you can stand on a high horse and say we're doing this on the web whereas like say facebook and and apple news aren't um and they're they're doing like their own one-off proprietary thing but all they're doing is like their one-off proprietary thing on top of web technologies. Like they're only putting content into this carousel yeah, that has specifically opted you, you into must, their crazy thing. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but you cannot mm -hmm. conflate web technologies with the web platform as like, a, right. like right. so cool. So that like the fact that they're using web technology to distribute their own things is irrelevant. Right, right. And, and it's not like, I mean, classically, what Google does is that they they go out into the web as it is and index it and try to make and try to make some kind of sense out of the chaos with a search project. Right. Mm -hmm. Look, with the search product, th this is going the, the opposite direction where it's saying, like, we're defining a format that ostensibly we control um, that, you know, in order to get into this incredibly valuable space in, in the number one search engine in the world, you're going to have to conform to these rules um, and you're going to have to have us, you know, have your content like host your content for you it so it's, yeah it's, it doesn't it's, change your rank but it does uh show you above even the first result if if you are like <laughs> it, like but but theoretically like once everyone did amp the the carousel would be correctly ordered i assume uh, okay, so like, so so basically, <laughs> once everybody changes all of their the, the right. entire web, then <laughs> like all of the content I, on the web. I was being then, uh, hyper. Right, right. I I understand you're being facetious, but but like this has some really bad consequences today, right? Like like to get into the the kind of politics, fake news side of things, a lot of really terrible um, pseudo news organizations have adopted these technologies before more reputable organizations. So like like an example of this just the other day was like I googled for Joe Biden and like the thing on top of all the search results that are reasonable was like a Breitbart article about how Joe Biden used taxpayer money to fund like hookers and blow or something like just some conspiracy theory. Um, and it was ranked higher than real search results because like Breitbart has done a better job of implementing AMP before him. Yeah. To, to be clear, I think, though, uh, that is a specific case of a larger problem at at Google and with like the political, like the same thing is true if AMP doesn't exist for the Breitbart is the second result in the, in the, uh, whatever results, um, the, the organic results. I, I think like, it's just a very difficult thing because those articles have so much traction and are so highly linked and believed by people that like maybe they, while being totally unfounded based on current algorithms that don't take into uh, account truth or re reputability in that manner, like this is a problem outside of this. I think AMP certainly 
uh, adds negatively to that pile. So I'm, I'm not defending AMP for this, but I don't think killing AMP would in any way solve that problem for what it's worth. Well, it, it seems like they have more solutions in their regular search results than they do in, in AMP right now, at least. Or, or yeah, there's just there's just less content, so it's easier to game. Is, sure. It, it's early days. Is all of the stuff that I've seen recently because of the fake news things where people are like, Google gives you these horrible results when you search for things politically. No, that, is, is That's what I'm saying is, is true regardless of AMP. Okay. Sometimes Google, like the instant answer thing, uh, will be just as bad. Like, uh, how much does Joe Biden make per year or whatever? You, and then the answer is like, Joe Biden siphons money out of the, the pizza restaurant <laughs> in uh, Atlanta that we you know, whatever. Uh, and so, so I think it's just an extremely hard problem. Um, it, like, maybe they shouldn't be doing it because it's a hard problem uh, or they should r- remove all politically related things. I don't know. But um, I think sometimes it's really like, Where's my closest polling place has a really good answer. And, and that's like a really good feature. So it's hard to weigh the bad versus the good. Yeah. I mean, I, I also just worry like there, there's a lot of work that people put into making their content accessible to AMP. Um, and so in this that, narrow context, it works better. That's on only mobile. kind of true. AMP is actually pretty easy to, to integrate with. I, I think easier than literally every other performance framework that has ever existed for these content creators for, for what it's worth. Like that, the reason why every major news organization already has AMP web pages is because it's so easy to integrate. And I, I think that says something. Yeah, I mean, just but the centralization aspect of it is concerning to me because yeah. like, I mean, that that is a performance boost within the kind of Google ecosystem, but that doesn't solve performance outside of that context at all, right? Yeah. Well, it does. It, it solves performance outside the context, just not to the extent that it solves it with inside the thing. Like kind of like I said before, I think one of the saving things like it's AMP is not my favorite thing. Like uh, I'm kind of I know you dislike it. So I'm trying to at least have an interesting discussion. But the the idea that if AMP died tomorrow uh, or Google ceased to exist, that nothing would break and all content would still be available is the exact opposite of how all those other um, things solving the same problem all fail that test. And I think that's one of the fundamental things that centralize why centralization is bad is because like we're reliant on Apple to maintain their app store in order to get software. And if their store stops existing, then all of a sudden we have no software in our heads to redo everything from scratch. And that's absolutely not true with AMP. I I think it still maintains the web. It just never directs you to that web currently, uh, which is weird, but not, it is fundamentally different. (laughs) I'm causing a lot of long pauses on your end today. So that probably just means I'm talking a lot. Well, neither of, I think that neither Michael or I really knew too much about like the integration methods or like the reason, well, obviously the reasoning behind it is kind of self-explanatory, but like I, I was just, I I knew nothing about it other than it was a thing that existed. Yeah. You can turn on a WordPress plugin and your, your site is AMP compatible. Oh, well that explains a lot. (laughs) I mean, you can break that with other plugins, but but yeah, that is pretty true. I mean, I I'm still incredibly skeptical of this notion that adding AMP support to these sites is actually making them better generally 
in terms of mobile performance. Like there are sites that come up in that carousel all the time, like the Huffington Post that I know for a fact when I pull up on mobile are terrible. Like if you pull up the actual site, sorry, like, better just, than they were before. <laughs> yeah. No, well, is, is I, I, I don't even know if that's true though. Like, well, I mean, actually, it seems like they're taking a lot of the garbage and just putting it around the AMP thing now. And, and yeah. just saying like, we, we don't even need to worry about mobile performance anymore because most they, people are reading it through this AMP thing. Sure. That, uh, that's a very good criticism. Um, you can serve different things to Google than you serve to, to users. Um, that's pretty tried and true. They have a UA and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so absolutely, there could be this backlash. So like, if I'm trying to like jump into the heads of the Google engineers that, that did this, uh, it's like, hey, we have this problem where increasingly, even web articles, p- content that people are writing on the web, people are consuming in centralized native applications. And one of the core reasons that this happens is performance. And so we need to like fix the performance costs. And they're saying the ends of centralizing and doing these things justifies the means of eventually all websites like uh, care about performance in the future because it, it gets them enough. Like it creates a new environment where performance matters. But I definitely understand the notion that if people don't have to do any work in order to have fast websites on AMP, then perhaps they'll actually invest fewer resources in making their actual websites faster if, as long as they could separate those two things well enough. And so I think it should be a fundamental goal of the AMP project to enforce somehow that like regular websites are getting faster along with the AMP websites. I think that would go a long way to uh, assuage those fears. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I'll, I'll reiterate again, and and full disclosure. I mean, Malta, who, who's one of the lead engineers over there, like, is a good friend of ours. <laughs> right, <laughs> yeah, right. Like, the format is great. I wish that people followed the format and then didn't have all the other garbage on their websites. Um, I think that the the issue that we tend to have with it is like the the carrot and stick that they're using to get this adopted um, by its integrate through its integration with the Google product is really problematic. But uh, that's uh, about all that we have for this topic. Uh, We're going to take a quick break. And then when we come back, we're going to get into a topic that I've already forgotten about. But (laughs) I'm sure that I'll remember by the time that we come back. First sponsor of the show today is our friends at Rollbar. Put errors in their place with Rollbar. Easily get set up for your application. NPM install dash dash save. Rollbar. That'll get you set up with Rollbar's notifier. You also need an account, so go to rollbar.com slash changelog. Sign up, get the bootstrap plan for free for 90 days. With Rollbar's full stack error monitoring, you get the context, the insights, and the control you need to find and fix bugs faster. No more relying on users to report your errors, digging through log files to debug issues, or dealing with a million alerts in your inbox, ruining your day. Once again, rollbar.com slash changelog. Sign up, get the bootstrap plan for free for 90 days. And now back to the show. All right. Now we're going to talk a little bit about fatigue, about, about JavaScript fatigue. Um, I'm certainly fatigued. I even forgot that the topic was going to be JS fatigue. But there's there's been an amazing amount of uh, tweets and articles about this. And it's already reaching the point where people are just, you know, referencing JS fatigue and and assuming that everybody knows what they're talking about. So I feel like it's probably going to be really good to, to come back around <laughs> and look into this a little bit. We uh, We already have... JS fatigue, fatigue. Right, exactly, exactly. 
Um, Rachel, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you think uh, this means and what, what have you seen out there in, in the New York community about this? Because I know a lot, a lot of these articles have actually been written by the New York crew. So. All right. Well, let me tell you. Um, so I think the JavaScript fatigue is like the burden of choice of I have so many things to use and what can I what should I use? What can I use? I mean, uh, I feel like it's now I'm reading this thing and it's like, write down all of the framework build tools libraries you can think of for 30 seconds straight and stop. And like, you could keep on writing the whole entire 30 seconds. There, there's so many different JavaScript libraries that all achieve the same end goal, but in various ways, depending on, you know, what you need for it. Like there's multiple bundlers, there's multiple like things that handle your routing in Node. There's multiple ways to do, um, you know, JavaScript animations. There's multiple like MVCs. There's now there's like multiple package manager options. There's different, there's like, there's so many different things. And I think that aside from there being so many different JavaScript libraries for people to choose from, I think that the fatigue is like, not only not being able to choose, but also having the feeling of like not being able to keep up with how fast these things are coming right. out. It's almost a social thing. It's like, I don't want to be the person using the old broken thing. What's cool to use? Like, exactly. I, I know it's not entirely that, but like there's part of that that's there. Yeah. I mean, like whenever something comes out too, people always jump on trying to learn it as fast as possible so that they don't have that feeling uh, the FOMO of not knowing about, you know, like what's hot in the JavaScript library. And the the worst part of it is you're going, you're going to get as many different responses for, you know, what should I use to achieve this goal as you'll get from like asking somebody, where should I go eat tacos in Austin? Like you're just going to get so many different answers and it it's hard to pinpoint, yeah. you know, what to choose to to the to that example as an Austinite, uh, you'll get a ton of different answers. But in general, uh, I feel like a good problem to have, and b you're probably going to have good tacos regardless of what you choose. Uh, and so I hate like this is a very rare moment in my mind where I think Michael probably has some good opinions about this, but I I think Michael you've done more research around like the npm ecosystem uh than than most people and you like to hype just raw numbers sometimes but mm -hmm. i feel like uh also your experience in like the python community uh prior to node and, and javascript um why is javascript different in this regard why um why does javascript have such uh like and and maybe that every community thinks that they're the community that has the paralysis of choice with fatigue but i, I don't believe that's true um but, and no, then no. as a as a second pretty unique yeah. follow-up question uh is it is it better uh, does it uh, does it mean we have revolutions more often that cause better things to occur and we move faster or is it worse in that everyone's constantly learning to new tools and the quality of, of output doesn't get any better those are my two questions uh you have 20 seconds <laughs> well, okay. So a couple notable things, right? One is that we used to just call this framework fatigue before NPM took off. And and this problem actually kind of predates even the, the NPM ecosystem. Obviously, it, you could think of it as being a little bit accelerated under the NPM ecosystem. But 
we've always had this issue where there is a new framework every year uh-huh. for people to build their web applications in and everybody wants you to learn it. Um, so there were the framework wars before JavaScript fatigue and the framework wars were like five frameworks, not well, 500 frameworks. Well, no, no, it was, it was five frameworks until jQuery one. And then people argued about what framework on top of jQuery that used jQuery that you were going to build onto. And, and it's, it's all the same thing, which I is still that, feel like it's exponentially exploded since uh, I think you nailed it with yes. NPM. Like uh, it, it yes, is exploded. Yes. So it, it is exploded, but like, here's the thing. Okay. One of the reasons why you get this more in this space than say like the cloud space or enterprise is because people build more new web applications than they maintain web applications. People build new stuff all the time. Um, and so when you have new things to build, you just have the opportunity to take a new tool. But isn't Python primarily like, what about like people build websites with Python constantly too? But I guess because JavaScript is the common language among every Python, PHP, uh, Ruby, or whatever website that, that it's multiplied times all the other languages? I mean, I know people that have Python backends, and they've swapped out, they built three completely different web apps on top of the same backend. Sure, sure. So, like, they actually, they, they haven't swapped out the backend, um, and it would cost them a lot to swap it out, and they'd have to write a lot of new code over again. Whereas, when you're building a new UI, you have to build a new UI. There's no, you can't like take a bunch of your old code and just reuse it again. Or no, at you least can. you definitely could. <laughs> what you you can with with npm, but like I, I think if you think about it from like the top level framework perspective, um, you can't. So th- there's an opportunity for people to do this more often, which is why we have more of these frameworks. Um, but I think a lot of the fatigue really comes down to higher order libraries, particularly frameworks, have a lot of hidden semantics in them. And as you learn the framework, you start to embed more and more of those semantics in your understanding of just how things work. Um, and when you have to switch to a new framework, all of that understanding gets thrown out the window. It's not really applicable anymore. And also operating under so many layers of semantics like that, it actually gets kind of hard to just think about applications and build applications. You start having to think in terms of frameworks rather than in terms of problems that you're solving. And then that makes it much harder for you to switch to the new thing when everybody's talking about the new thing yeah. now. Uh, specifically, I, I definitely find that like interviewing people, even uh, people that I, I work with from time to time, like... Uh, and, and this was true in the jQuery days of like there are people who knew jQuery and nothing else. But like I can talk to them and they know so much about now. Uh, now it's pure functions and uh, functional programming and uh, specifically around like immutability and uh, like all these different very extremely technical computer science like ideas compared to history. And like they have very concrete ideas around like state management, all these things like essentially they live in this Redux React world where they know so much there. And then uh, like it's it's like, well, we want to get a key event from the browser. And I have, I have no idea what you're even talking about. Like, What's a key event? Like you write browser applications. It's just like you get sucked into this specific world where it feels like you can solve everything because um, I, I don't know. Like I see people who are brilliant programmers who who have such a, a narrow worldview that it's a little bit sad, but not in like a sad, sad way that they're all smart enough to learn. It's just weird that they haven't noticed the outside stuff. Yeah. Do you mean a narrow worldview in the sense that they're stuck in their like way that they've been programming for so long that they're not open to um, new ways it's, to do it? It's usually the opposite. It's usually like e- extremely smart 
brand new developers started two years ago when Redux and React were like coming up and they've come up in that world and that's how they solve anything. And they've like, I don't want to be the get off my lawn person who's like, you got to learn the DOM API before you can learn a framework. Mm. But the idea that you, because those tools are so powerful, I think it kind of lulls you into this false specialization, um, if, if that makes sense. I see what you're saying. Well, it, it is the world that you have to live in, right? Uh, yeah. I, th I think it's notable that, you know, Substack doesn't have this problem. And and I'll start off by just saying we can't all be Substack. Like, that's <laughs> this isn't a solution for everyone. But, um, you know, if you are really diligent about not using frameworks, not using like a lot of vertically integrated kind of plugin architectures, and you just use these small components that have understandable inputs and outputs, right? So there may be a lot of complexity behind the module that it's doing, but what you understand is like you give it this input and you know that you get this output. And if you string those together, you can adopt new modules that replace old ones all the time. Every time you take on a new project, you're just adding a couple kind of tools to your tool chest. It's, it's you know, long-term, it's like a really sustainable strategy to this particular problem. For one person. What? Uh for one person, I, and I don't even think just Substack. I think any application that can be written by a single person could very easily adopt that strategy, or not easily, but could adopt that strategy with success. I find as soon as you add a team of 20 people all working in an application, like you can't have 95 different documentation points. I, I, I think it's a bit of a false dichotomy. Like I, I think that, uh, so, I mean, I'll, I'll agree with, I mean, a lot of people do write applications that way with with larger teams than just one person. Um, and even a lot of the stuff the Substack builds, he builds with other people. But a really large team likes to have some of these larger frameworks because it standardizes the way in which people interact with very messy web APIs. <laughs> I, I think that like the way that the web platform works is messy. And everybody sort of opting into a way to make that simpler it is a little bit simpler for larger teams. And they're just a lot of the problems that those frameworks solve, like you know, redefining how, say, like the event system works and, or how mutations work to the DOM. Like there hasn't been a ton of small modules that solve those particular problems um, so that you can standardize on, oh, well, we use this module to solve that problem. But I think that as we move along in the future, I do think that we're going to get closer and closer to that place. I'm with you, but I think all of the conversations we're having apply to a backend application written in a different language, like the idea of small modules versus versus like a coherent framework is, is not specific to the web platform being messy. I, I think like to to I'm sure quote Tom or Yehuda um, on the Ember team. It's like Ember is not just like one big file called Ember.js. It's a bunch of small modules with expected input and output, just like a framework pieced together by those are. It's just they're known to work together and they're tested together and uh, they're planned together, things like that. They just happen to be written by the same people. But Ember is made up of, you know, 300 something individual small modules that have expected input and output. Well, so is React and so is Angular. I think that they're all kind of built that way now. I, I didn't mean I, I didn't mean uh, to say the Ember w was the only one. I'm saying that I think the false dichotomy is that you you don't have this option of small modules that get expected input and output. It's the fact that you have to choose them yourself. And I think that's actually what plays into a lot of the fatigue is that 
if you do the small module thing, you have to make a decision about which library to use a hundred times uh, versus once with a larger framework, which may be not what you want because you actively have opinions about all those small modules. But when you get to a certain size or a certain level of caring, you say, I just want to know something is work works and is supported. Uh, and then you kind of make the trade-off that says, I'll let the framework uh, library developers choose that small module for me rather than choose it myself. So I think frameworks actually help to prevent the fatigue that a lot of people feel by, by making a lot of choices by default. So wouldn't, wouldn't the problem then, if, if the problem doesn't lie with the, with the frameworks and the people that, ideally the groups of people that are working on these frameworks are, you know, making the best decisions for modules to implement into those libraries. Could I guess the JavaScript fatigue could just extend then to the module makers that are making so many different versions of the same thing. I guess. I, I think like I, I used to I used to hope for like a better outcome for this kind of stuff. Like when I started to see all these frameworks be built out of more small components, I thought that we would have a lot more longevity and a lot more sanity around them. But what we've actually seen is like weird consolidation and plug-in patterns and a lot of these, the underlying tools turning into their own frameworks, right? Yeah, so like, like Babel has like a crazy plugin system and Webpack has a crazy plugin system and React uses all of these together to make its crazy thing. And so if you, even, even when you move on to the yeah. next framework that you build on top of Webpack and Babel, you're still going to be locked into like these weird, um, you know, just <laughs> for lack yeah. of a better term, proprietary plugin systems. But sure. They're, they're not proprietary. Democratized uh, in the author authorship of those. Right. Uh, but yeah. So uh, to kind of jump back to the other question, uh, since I think we could talk about small modules versus large modules, and I'm sure we will again. The Is, is this a like is the pain that JS fatigue causes, does it pay off? So like theoretically, if we can go through more iterations of like ideas on how to solve the fundamental problems of the web and application development, then we can have better applications faster. So the, the trade-off would be if we spend all of our time learning the new things, then we don't actually gain any speed. But my feeling is that like free markets um <laughs> oh, i hate saying that uh free <laughs> markets kind of like dictate that like people have a desire to learn new things and like they have problems with their old tools and it's kind of nifty that in the, in our community somewhat seem seemingly uniquely like new solutions come out so quickly uh, and are so easy to put out um that like we can solve some of our fundamental problems much more quickly than like the Python two to Python three transition has got you know like or like a Rails upgrade um, in in other ecosystems. Um, so so I feel like maybe the web and JavaScript tooling can move forward more quickly because of this. And is it worth the trade off and, and kind of that thing? I I agree with that. Plus, if there's like so many options and people are trying them out, the ones that don't work aren't going to get widely adopted anyway. Hopefully. Yeah, I mean, like, I think that there's there's two competing ideas about where innovation in this space is is driven. So is it driven by 
new capabilities being opened up in the web platform. And so we need new frameworks to take advantage of them um, and new tools to take advantage of them. Or is it actually driven by completely new use cases? And I, I tend to not buy into the um, things are driven by the underlying platform, but they're actually driven by new use cases. Like yeah. when, mo- when mobile was on the rise, we saw a new like, right. you know, slew of frameworks that solved mobile. And it's not that the old frameworks were bad at solving older problems. They just weren't particularly situated well for mobile. Right. I think specifically that carrot in this case is like, what are native apps doing? It's almost entirely the, the generator of, of new ideas. Um, that like, how, how do we compete with more or less a better experience in almost every default case from the, the native apps? Um, and, and the web, by kind of the way it works, is always going to be a little bit behind the like proprietary curve because of its constraints. But, but yeah, I, I don't know. Sorry, I cut you off again. Yeah, no, no. I mean, that that's that's notable. I mean, I don't know what the next thing is going to do that's going to make, you know, React can't adapt itself enough to handle. And so we'll get a new framework. But I, I do think it's notable that one of the, the problems that React solved was creating this like componentized model. And in order to do that, they basically had to like invent subsets of the language and, and run everything through a compile chain to yeah. JSX. And that we actually do have language level features now that supplant most of that, like with with, with string uh, template tagged template literals. Um, you can you can basically you know not have to do such a crazy compile chain now, and you have these language level subsets. But there hasn't been a new framework that has really taken advantage of that. Like everybody taking advantage of it is in kind of the Substack, and and, and actually I'm in uh, this space a bit too. Styled um, styled components, uh, I think does a pretty good job with CSS right. inline, uh, if for what it's worth. Again, though, but style components feel like they're going after some newer use cases as well, like um, or, or at least they're being adopted there. So I, f- I feel like a lot of even the underlying platform features that we've gotten that are going to make this nicer are, are actually going to play out once we know what the, the next thing that we need to deal with is. So, I mean, maybe maybe it's peer to peer real time stuff or offline or like who knows what what the next set of patterns are that these aren't going to work on, but that's when we'll actually see people take much more advantage of all these new features in the platform. Yeah. I think it's time for a break. Yep. When we come back, we'll uh, get into the project of the week. Our friends at Top Tower, longtime supporters of ChangeLog. If you've ever had to quickly scale your team, you know how hard it is. You have to go through all this hassle of writing job descriptions, adding them to your website, or maybe you have to hire somebody just to go out there and find the candidates for you. That's a lot of work, a ton of work that you don't have to do if you call my friends at TopTile. They do all the work for you to find the right candidates for your positions. Plus, because they have a very rigorous screening process to identify the best, you know you're only getting qualified candidates for your open positions. Head to TopTile.com to learn more. That's T-O-P-T-A-L.com. Tell them Adam from the ChangeLog sent you. If you'd like a more personal introduction, email me, adam at changelaw.com. And now back to the show. And we're back. Uh, now we're going to get into the project of the week, Paths.js. This is a library. It's pretty sweet. It's like uh, for doing SVG paths and stuff like that. I know you, you spent some time looking into this a little bit, Rachel. Why don't you tell us a little more about it? No, I didn't. You did. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we're going we're gonna to now finger point. well i mean yeah i'm looking at it right now you you submitted it you talk about it 
it's it's an interesting library. Um, so it has like a low level API, mid level API, and a high level API. But but even the high level API, like you you need to have a bit more of an understanding about you know curves and stuff like that. It is sort of designed for people that maybe know a little bit about how SVG works and want like a, a better library for creating charts or a quicker library for creating charts than just doing things by hand, which does anybody write SVG by hand? That's yeah. Yeah. Wow. 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 I, I, I'm impressed. I'm impressed. I, I like my brain can't comprehend writing SVGs by hand. So that's pretty impressive. I, tr- I always start trying to write them. And I, as soon as I have to like declare the size on the board in two different places, I'm, I'm dead. Like, I don't know if you guys have ever done it by hand. It immediately confuses me. I mean, I could do a square, but that's about it, probably. <laughs> there we go. Well, yeah. <laughs> but I, I think that something interesting about this is that it's it's really giving you a lot of simple code paths for declaring uh, and doing different kinds of math. Like, you, you could build a lot of great libraries for just doing interesting math operations on these primitives. And so I think that this could actually open up, like, a lot more of an ecosystem on top of SVG stuff, right? Where I mean, the mid-level API seems really accessible for people that even aren't used to writing, um, you know, a lot of intense SVG stuff by hand because it defines the shapes in like plain English, where then you just have to supply the parameters for the points where your like shapes are going to be created in the graph. I don't know if you took a look at it, but it's just like allowing you to do things a lot easier. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it seems to open up a lot more like there's, there's plugins for, for D3, right? Um, Yeah. There's a lot. Yeah. There's like a lot of plugins, but they plug into that API. They're not like abstractions on top of it where you give them different parameters Uh, and they spit out new stuff. Right. Yeah. I think that's pretty common. Actually D3 is so low level that there are plenty of charts libraries that just use D3 as as the underlying thing, but you're generally like, I'm sure you can supply D3 objects and things like that, but it like there are whole charting libraries where you don't have to know that D3 exists um, that use D3 and other covers for what it's worth. Mm-hmm. So this would be similar to, to that. Like, uh, like you don't have to know SVG. Debra- uh, depends. <laughs> I think you have to know D3, right? Like you have to know D3 in order to get a D3 plugin in. Also, I mean, so I haven't seen anything that was like, you know, an NPM install this library or or even just a library that you could take off the shelf that included D3. It's like a lot of those chart libraries that you're talking about, I always had to include it as a script tag. I had like, you know, 19, no, 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 <laughs> 2015 style. But yeah, yeah. Bauer for sure. Uh, yeah, it's just so most of those libraries are so far from working, even in like JS Dom that, that it hasn't been a huge thing, but now that like everybody uses Webpack and stuff to be able to pull vendor stuff out of node modules and into actual files, I think it's, it's all there. Not everybody's using Webpack. I don't use Webpack. Uh, Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Every time. (laughs) Yeah, no, this is this is really nice though. This like this seems like something that could be used um together with a lot of other libraries. So it's exciting stuff. Just to uh throw in some negativity, uh not specific about this library, but D three is a is a big uh <laughs> doer of of my problem. I cannot read any of this. <laughs> I've never oh been gosh. able to look at this. Like they're constantly using X's and Y's, which I understand is fundamentally the thing they're plotting, you know, like, uh, 
but it just instantly looks like garbage to me and I have no idea what's happening. And like, I just want like way more comments or like a much higher <laughs> level API than this, like make graph. Uh, <laughs> like the, the, I think this is like, the, there's an old joke about make files where only one make file has ever been made and everything else is someone copying that make file and then modifying it to their needs. Right. And I think that's true of D3. Like the, there is no D3 visualization that didn't initially come from Mike Bostock's demo uh, set of visualizations uh, modified from there. And, and I think like, I'm not sure I could like use this. I don't do a ton of SVG, but I don't know if I could very quickly pick this up because it kind of fundamentally means you have to know a lot about like plotting and, and math and, and stuff. I don't think it's for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it would be part of my job to implement some of these things for what it's worth. Like the graphs is absolutely something that I could get assigned at work at any given time. I think that the people that like primarily do um, data, data viz programming, it's helpful for it. It probably makes a lot more sense. Like I'm, I'm looking at it and it, and a lot of it makes sense to me, but also like, why do you have me put in what is this? A semi-regular polygon is this? Oh, no, that makes <laughs> sense. Like, I get it. Like, I, I can read through this and like eventually like, all right, so we're doing a modulus of this. That way the colors change and we're doing, you know, a list of these little elements that show up next to each other with spacers. Like, I get it. It's just compared to all other type of programming is much harder for me to read. And and it's not like a problem with this library. It's like a problem with visual programming that is just, it's a whole different beast um, that, that isn't natural, I think, to, sorry, not natural, like, a, that seemed like a much worse dig, it, natural to me specifically, or I think a lot of people who, who program other things. But like, there are things like processing JS that kind of flip that on. It's so like, I can understand processing JS uh, or processing uh but like that's kind of the goal of that project was to to have, you know, syntax that makes more sense for visualizations. I don't know. Interesting. I, I still feel like this stuff is more understandable than any WebGL stuff that I've ever seen, e even oh, yeah. with good tools. <laughs> like, <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Even with like, you know, Regal and Almacola stuff, it's like, okay, import this algorithm that does, I have no idea what, um, <laughs> that operates on like an n-dimensional array. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah, I, I to be clear, my concerns with this have more to do with my own inadequacies than it does with the any inadequacies of these libraries. Uh, it's just that I think I have a common inadequacy when it comes to visual like graphics programming like this. I think that this is why they invented the DOM was to give like a, <laughs> yeah, yeah. a semi-usable way to do visual programming, sure. even though it's such a mess. It it you know at least doesn't have <laughs> like that kind of bar to get over yeah so with with that uh, i think we're going to move on to the uh the individual picks and let's spend a little bit of time uh this week talking about that so uh rachel why don't you go first uh, i was just checking out your pick sure my pick isn't necessarily new but it is exciting and i feel like not enough people that do creative coding really know about it um it's uh it's called tracery it is a library where it allows you to write grammar objects to make generative stories in an easier way. So a lot of people that do, you know, 
Twitter bots or art projects for on websites with like generative poetry. It just makes it a lot easier to, um, you know, swap stuff out instead of like having to write your own uh, randomized like picker for certain types of grammars. So the way that it works is you have like an object with key value pairs for each item that you are going to swap out. And the value is an array of a bunch of different strings that it could be for that object. So I've seen a bunch of really cool poetry things done with this. But the main reason that I wanted to talk about Tracery is because um, George Buckingham, he's V21 on GitHub and on Twitter, made this really awesome Node.js library that also allows you to like implement it into projects even easier. But he didn't stop there. After he did the Node library, um, he decided, hey, wouldn't it be awesome if people could swap instead of grammar, they could swap SVG variables out. So there's this website called Cheap Bots Done Quick, and it utilizes Tracery and allows you to automatically create your own Twitter bot. One of the most popular ones that I, I usually tell people about when I'm talking about this is at Soft Landscapes, which has a ton of followers on Twitter. And what it does is every, I think, eight hours, maybe six hours, it tweets out a really pretty gradient pastel landscape of like a gradient sky and a mountain range. And it's just really nice to look at. And if you go to the Cheap Bots Done Quick site, you can see the source code and it hurts my brain to look at. Uh, it, it's it's the tracery JSON for the SVG that is generative. So that is my pick of the week. It's fun and it gets people to make some stuff. That's it. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> uh, you want me to go next, Michael? Is that what your science implies? Oh my god, I was just talking, but uh, I had it. <laughs> so. <laughs> No, I was just saying, like to, to nobody, um, that uh, th this this library is sort of like those fill in the blank stories where, uh, yeah, like, <laughs> like ahead of time, somebody's like, oh hey, uh, like like give me a name of somebody, give me like you know a thing that you do to somebody else, and then it, you get a funny, hilarious story at the end of it. Mad -libs. Yep, Ma the Mad Libs. That's what they're called. Rachel said it. Yeah, have you have you played Mad Libs as an adult? Because now they all just like turn into like horribly inappropriate things. <laughs> I don't know. When I play, it's always like a butt walked into a fart and farted at a butt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Pretty much the same as when I was a kid. Right. Right. All right. So uh, I'll I'll get into my pick. Uh, so I did. Uh, I picked. Um, Lemonade Stand. It's it's a repository from uh, Nadia Egbal, who uh, is the co-host with me on uh, RFC Request for Commits. But she put together this amazing page of um, basically every open source funding model that you can think of. So everything from like getting paid by a company to work on open source to donation buttons to crowdfunding to grant funding to literally you know starting a company and getting venture capital. So she has. Um, all of them listed with, you know, different, you know, case studies of different projects that have done it this way and links to articles and kind of pros and cons list. It's really, really cool. Um, so look for that in the show notes, uh, Lemonade Stand. Cool. Um, my pick of the week is a polyfill. So it's really uh, a pick for the Dom. But um, 
it's the intel.js library. Um, I think a lot of people don't use Intel. They're still using the various uh, random plugins, but I would love to see more standardization around uh, internationalization and uh, formatting and things like that. So uh, if you're unfamiliar with Intel I-N-T-L, it's an object in most modern browsers as well as Node now, and it can help you do number formatting, currency formatting, daytime formatting, all that kind of stuff, all in the native web platform. Uh, which is beautiful. And then the polyfill is uh, Andy Earnshaw's uh, Andy Earnshaw's polyfill that just goes on the top. It doesn't do things like collation because it's really tough and there uh, are like some algorithms it doesn't do, but it's pretty good because Safari obviously is still hurting us here. Uh, they don't have Intel. But thanks a lot. Does does it convert foreign exchange rate currencies? So no, no. <laughs> okay, obviously not. Michael. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's a very specific question though. So uh, uh, you should hire someone. <laughs> I'm actually, I'm looking to go to Europe soon and I'm so happy with how strong the dollar is right now. It's really nice. <laughs> I've actually never gone to Europe this cheaply before, so. Humble brag. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're like going to Europe is bragging? Okay. No, yeah. the do- the strength of the, the cheapness of it. Oh, the cheapness. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sorry, I've never Europe. gone to Europe this cheaply before. <laughs> I already booked my flights. I should have waited. I could have had all that extra money to spend on caviar. <laughs> yeah. uh, with, with, with that in mind, everybody definitely go to um, our GitHub repository, uh, github.com slash the changelog slash JS party um, and give us topics. And uh, you can even suggest uh, potential co-hosts because like I just said, we're going to be in Europe pretty soon. <laughs> and so some of us will uh, not be available as panelists and we'd love to hear the kinds of people that you'd like to um, have fill in for us while we're out. Also rate the show on iTunes and subscribe to all kinds of things and subscribe to the change log. And thank you very much. And we are out. That's it for this episode of JS Party. Tune in live on Fridays at 3 p.m. U.S. Eastern at changelog.com slash live. Follow us on Twitter. We're at JS Party FM. Join the community in Slack with us in real time during the show at the changelog.com slash community. Special thanks to our sponsors, Rollbar and TopTile. Also thanks to our bandwidth partner, Fastly.com and Breakmaster Cylinder for the awesome beats. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. <laughs>